Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and lifts you up. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. So turn in your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 10, the Gospel of Luke chapter 10. We're going to be reading verses 25 through 37, and I'd like to just begin by reading it together. So if you can get in your Bible, turn in your phone, whatever it is you use, to Luke chapter 10, 25 through 37, and I'm going to ask us to stand again in honor of the Word. I know it feels a little bit like church aerobics, up and down and up and down, but uh, You know, there's something, I don't know, I guess the desire of my heart is to elevate the Word of God. So changing our posture helps to do that. Um, Luke chapter 10, I'm going to start with verse 25. It says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So it's January. Keep your Bibles open there. It's January, and which means for New River Church that we're praying about whether or not God is calling us to work together, to worship together for another year. You know, we take membership pretty seriously around here. So each year we just hit the pause button in January and we pray. And if you haven't received one yet, I I hope that you have, uh, but be sure to get one, a copy of our covenant, our fellowship covenant, um, because it's important for you to read that and pray over it before you sign it on January 29th. And uh, don't worry, there's no fine print. You're not going to need a lawyer, you know, to read it carefully. There's no gotchas, Uh, but it's important for you to read it so that you know what you're signing, because we won't have time to do that on January 29th. So... Do that ahead of time and um, to, before you get into it. In preparation for that, we typically take the month of January, these few weeks, and we talk about things that are super important to us as a church. So last Sunday, Matt 
talk to us about prayer. And thank you, Matt. That was a great word. I really appreciated that on persistence, good prayer, good word. On Friday night, we held an all-night prayer meeting. We're in the middle of 21 days of prayer. Jesus. Jesus is our lifeblood, and prayer is our lifeline. Amen? So you need to know something about New River Church, if you're new here, that everything you appreciate about our church is an answer to prayer. There's nothing that we do that's clever. This is not the result of somebody's great planning. That what you appreciate about what's going on here is the direct result of pray, prayer. We pray, we humble ourselves before God, and he moves in our midst. And I really don't know how it works beyond that. But it's miraculous, and I praise him for it. There's something else that we take super seriously here at church, and that's this. A lot of Christians call it the greatest commandment and the great commission. And we're, we're, we desire that these two things not just be a nice slogan, but they actually be something that we live out. And the great commission is found in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And I promise that we will look at that in the next couple of weeks where Jesus sent us into the world to go and to make disciples of all nations. That's the great commission. Um, but this morning, I want to focus on the greatest commandment. I'd like to focus on this conversation that we just read between Jesus and this lawyer in Luke chapter 10. Now, here's how this goes. The lawyer, you've got to love lawyers. Lawyer comes to Jesus to test him. If you know anything about Jesus, you know that's a bad idea. And yet he tries to test Jesus, and you got to love lawyers with their eye for detail, their love for loopholes, their, their appreciation for the fine print. And this man asked Jesus this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, any of you see what's wrong with that question? Maybe right away you pick up on it. You say, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Did you catch that? There's nothing that you and I can do to inherit eternal life. You and I can't come up with enough good deeds to earn our way to heaven. If you think that you can be good enough for heaven, then your vision of heaven is far too small. Your understanding of God is far too limited. Getting into heaven is not like joining a country club. It's not like taking a test to see if you qualify for a soccer team or something like that. The standard for heaven is absolute perfection. So listen, it's like this. If you and I go out here into the parking lot and we say, we have a little contest and we say, hey, let's see who can throw a rock into the ocean from this parking lot. You know, you might throw your rock further than I throw my rock because you're stronger. But the truth is, neither of us is going to come anywhere close. And the same thing is true morally. You know, you might be a better person than I am. You probably are. I'll give you that. You've probably sinned less than I have sinned. But the truth is, none of us comes anywhere close to measuring up to the standard. And this is why we need Jesus. He's literally the only one who can get us there. You see, we don't get to heaven on our good works. We get to heaven on his good works. He did it perfectly. You and I have not. And so we trust in him. We believe in him. Do you believe in him? Have you, do you put your trust, you bank in everything on this, that Jesus' good works are enough to get you past the test, past the gates, into heaven someday. 
because that's the truth. So this lawyer's question about what he must do to inherit eternal life is totally out of line. But look at Jesus. Notice his kindness. Notice his grace. Jesus doesn't correct the lawyer for his bad question, does he? He doesn't jump on his case. Instead, Jesus stops and he talks to the man. And Jesus talks to him at his level. Isn't that interesting? He's a lawyer. And so Jesus asks him a question about the law. Makes sense. Do you love Jesus? He comes to us right where we are. So he asks this lawyer, hey, so tell me, what, what does the law tell you? It's a good question. How do you read it? In verse 27, the man responds by quoting what's called the Shema. The Shema is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Orthodox Jews to this very day still quote the Shema three times a day. It's, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. He quotes this. And then this man, this Jewish lawyer, tacks on another command from Leviticus chapter 19 and love your neighbor as yourself. And again, you've got to notice the kindness and the grace of Jesus as it shines through because Jesus actually compliments this man on his answer. Good job. Good answer, he says. You know, this conversation is recorded in a couple of other Gospels and over in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark expands on the conversation a little bit. And in Mark, he says, Jesus tells the man, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You are this close. I love that. The man just asked, ready? The, don't, don't miss it. The man just asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then he answers this question, and then Jesus goes, you're close. You're close. See, it reminds me of a conversation I had many years ago with our landlord. Before we bought this building, we were, I don't know, 15, 16 years without a building like this. We um, worshiped in a school gym. We met house to house for small groups each week. And then we rented an office space in the middle of the town of South Windsor. Our office landlord and I became friends. We developed a friendly relationship over the years. And one day he actually came to me and he talked to me about eternity. He was an older man, and he was afraid, and he, he shared with me that he was afraid that he would not have enough money to leave to his children, which I found to be an odd question. He's a multimillionaire. The guy owns like half, he did, he's passed away, owned like half of South Windsor, right? He had plenty of money, so money wasn't the issue, yet he was afraid. I told him, a, so I complimented him after I let him talk, I let him share his heart, and then I complimented him on how biblical he was. I said, you know, in Proverbs, it says that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, so you're being biblical, which surprised him because that was really the furthest thing from his mind in his life. And I wonder if this lawyer had the same look of surprise on his face as that man had on his face when Jesus goes, you're that close. You're almost. Good job. So Jesus tells him this, do this and live. That's an interesting statement. Jesus is actually telling him that, that he's got a shot at, at earning eternal life. Like Jesus goes, you know, if you do this, you can live. Yeah, look at what you have to do. If you can love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and if you can love the Lord your God with 
all of your strength and all of your soul and all of your mind. And if you can love your neighbor as much as you love yourself all the time, perfectly, you got a shot. Anybody here want to take that challenge? Yeah, me neither, man. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's a Sunday morning, and I'm at church, and I'm pretty sure I've already broken it, right? I mean, it's impossible. I'm, I'm, I don't think it's possible for me to ever do anything with a 100% pure motive. Why stop and think about it? I mean, even my best deeds are twisted a little bit in there, and yet... Jesus, so Jesus tells this man, if you can love the Lord your God with all and all and all and all, well, there you go. Now, in reply to this, this lawyer asked Jesus another question, because this lawyer clearly is not quite understanding the gravity of this, and he's got some pride that needs to get dealt with. And so this lawyer, in order to justify himself, look at verse 29, in order to justify himself, this lawyer asked Jesus this question. He, he's a great lawyer. He asked for a point of clarification. Let's make a motion, see, to set up a committee to investigate this further. Jesus, I got a question for you. Who exactly is my neighbor? And in response to that, Jesus tells this famous story that many of us probably already know of the Good Samaritan. There's a man traveling on a road. He's traveling between Jerusalem and Jericho. This is a dangerous road. Jews actually called this road back then, it was called the Way of Blood. It's a 17-mile stretch of road. I actually got to walk it when I was studying there in college. It's a cool road, but it is desolate. You've got little mini canyons and crevices. It's desert. It's, everything's dead. Nobody's out there. It's the perfect place for thieves to hang out and to just pounce on anybody who would be walking by. So this man gets left, he gets robbed, he gets left for dead. As he lays on the ground, grasping for life in a pool of blood, along comes a priest. You would think, surely this priest would stop and help this man, and yet he doesn't. Huh. And then comes a Levite. Well, if the priest, maybe he's too busy. But the Levite would definitely help this man because the Levite's a religious leader, so, so surely he'll stop, but he doesn't. And then, Jesus says, a Samaritan comes by. Now, you and I fail to appreciate the gravity of this. We fail to appreciate the punch and the shock of this statement to Jesus' audience. Let me see if I can explain it a little bit. We live in a time right now where racial tensions are high, where division is all over the place, but our experience is nothing like theirs was. The Jews and the Samaritans hated one another. Feelings were mutual, like they literally hated one another. And their hatred for one another had gone all the way back to 700 years before the time of Christ. So by the time you come to the life of Jesus and he's telling this story to this man, he's talking about a 700-year-old grudge, okay? So in the 7th century, the Assyrians came in and they wiped out the northern 10 tribes of Israel. In the Old Testament times, Israel was divided into 12 tribes, 
So you had 10 tribes of Israel living in the northern part of the country, two tribes that lived in the southern part of the country, and Assyria came in on one of their military campaigns, and they obliterated the northern 10 tribes of Israel. As part of their campaign to subjugate their conquered peoples, their plan was to intermingle all of their conquered peoples. It was a way of watering down cultures, watering down religions, so that Assyria could maintain control over the people that they had conquered. That was their plan. So after destroying much of northern Israel, Assyria did this. They mixed the Jews that lived in the northern part of Israel with their other conquered peoples. And this led to a kind of a mutt race of people. They're not Jew. They weren't Assyrian. They weren't Persian. They weren't Ethiopian. They were just a blend of all of it. And then these peoples coming together, they also mixed their religions in the same way. So it's part Judaism, part Zoroastrianism, part pagan, just a little bit of all of it. Now, by the time you come to the first century, when Jesus walked the earth, and Jesus is talking to this Jewish lawyer, Jewish Hebrew nationalism had reached its zenith. Jews clung to their purity as Jews. Uh, in fact, you know, you've heard of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they, they gave Jesus a lot of trouble in his ministry. The, the word Pharisee literally means separatist. These, these were the men who saw themselves as the guardians of all things Jew. And, and they were the guardians and the protectors of the purity of Hebrews and their way of life, you see. So you can imagine that any attempts from people like the Samaritans to at all claim identity with the Jews would be quickly slapped down. And as you can imagine, the feelings were mutual over time. So you've got Jews hating Samaritans, Samaritans hating Jews, and they avoided one another at all costs. So when Jesus makes the Samaritan, or at this point in the story, when he suggests, hints, that the Samaritan might just become the hero of the story, can you feel the tension in his audience like, no way, you're not about to go there, are you, Jesus? You, you, are, you are not going to say what I think you're about to say. That's what this Jewish lawyer's thinking. You see, um, it's not hard for us to translate this into our culture. Um, we have people in our culture that we would think are untouchables, um, that we might not want to associate with. Imagine, like, if Jesus... We're walking the earth right now. Let's say he's ministering right now. And um, there's a picture of Jesus that surfaces on the internet of him having dinner with a, a known pedophile. Right? Or, or maybe there's a picture of Jesus that goes viral on the internet. He's having dinner with uh, the Proud Boys or with a, a white supremacist. Right? You say, well, that would be unthinkable, wouldn't it? Why, how, Jesus would hang out with the likes of that? See, would you be tempted to cancel Jesus for such behavior? I think there's many people in our culture that would, yet the shocking truth about Jesus is, you ready? He genuinely loves everybody. And that means everybody. 
In fact, there are some people who would refuse. I know people, I've shared Jesus with people who refuse to become Christians because they're aware of Jesus' love for everybody and they judge that as wrong. I can't follow a Jesus like that. And maybe you're even sitting there thinking that right now. There's no way I could follow a Jesus that would have dinner with those. No. And yet, my friend, that is the truth about Jesus. He loves everybody, including you. So Jesus then makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. He does the unthinkable. The Samaritan, unlike the priest and unlike the Levite, stops alongside the road. Not only does he help the man, not only does he check on the man, but he, put, he puts him up in, a, in an inn. He gives money to take care of him. He promises to come back and pay the bill. Like this Samaritan goes the extra mile, doesn't he? And then Jesus lowers the boom and he answers and he ends his story with this question to his Jewish lawyer friend. He says, which of these three men, the priest, the Levite, Samaritan, was a neighbor? Notice that the lawyer cannot even bring himself to say the word. He says, the one who helped him. I imagine him gritting his teeth when he said that. There's no way he could admit that a Samaritan would do something good like that. Now, don't overlook the brilliance of Jesus in telling this story. Because in the telling of this story and in posing the question the way that Jesus did, Jesus forced this Jewish lawyer to actually come into agreement with a Samaritan. You see what he did? He actually brought this lawyer to the place where he had to, he had to like, the Samaritan did the same thing that I would do. <laughs> Jesus is amazing. I love that about him. So in telling this story, Jesus masterfully bridges the gap between a Samaritan and a Jew. And then Jesus tells the Jewish lawyer, just go and do likewise. Go ahead, just make that happen. Now, many of you know the story, but I want to take us back to verse 29. And I'd like to focus on this and ask a question that will drive this home for us today, okay? Luke, Luke opens up the lawyer's heart, and he exposes us to you know, something that the lawyer's thinking. And he tells us this in verse 29. He tells us that the lawyer wanted to, quote, justify himself. You see that? I want to justify myself with regards to who is my neighbor. Can I ask you a question? Do you ever justify yourself when it comes to the command to love your neighbor? I think we do. Here's what I mean. We do the same thing to this command to love your neighbor that our lawyer friend did. We turn it into a metaphor. We define neighbor in metaphorical terms. You know, my metaphorical neighbor is any person who's in need. And since there are so many needy people out there, and since I only have so much time, I cannot possibly meet all of those needs. Well, then... I'll just simply do what I can do, enough to make me feel good about myself, and then I can claim that I've done my part, and you see, I love my neighbor. We love our metaphorical neighbor as much as we love ourselves. That's really how we say that verse. Or worse, we hear Jesus' story, and we read this, and we say, we define neighbor as being any person who's in this kind of terrible situation. And well, you know, since I've never been a witness to a crime scene this bad, 
I presume that I'm doing my part. I mean, if this is what it means to love your neighbor, and since I've never seen that, well, then clearly I'm doing okay. But I comfort myself by thinking that, you know, if I were to ever come across someone like this, I would definitely do something about it. I know that. I know that about myself. Don't you? Yeah. See, we, we actually believe that we would. We live behind the comfort of our computers and our phones, and we scroll through, through social media feeds, we watch other people's lives imploding, and we shake our heads in self-righteous disgust, and we wonder why nobody helps them out there. And we think that surely if I was closer, if I was there, I would do something, unlike all those people that aren't doing anything. But you see, since I never leave the comfort and the safety of my own phone, I'm actually never there. But I've justified myself. I feel good about myself. I'm loving my neighbor because if the need ever arose, I would definitely stop and help out. But I want to ask us a question. What if neighbor is not metaphorical? What if neighbor is literal? Literal. You know, the people you live around every day. The people. The other people in your dorm, the other people in your apartment building where you live, the other people that live in the house next to yours or in front of yours or behind yours. Like, what if your house or your dorm room or your apartment were to, like, become an outpost of the kingdom of God in your neighborhood and your table became the center of it? Your table became base camp where the kingdom of God launched, where the kingdom of God established a beachhead in your neighborhood. Your table was the beachhead. One pastor asked it this way, that this was a poignant question. He says, what if our homes stopped being havens in which we hide from the world and instead became havens to which the world comes for healing? Rosaria Butterfield is an author. She's written some really great things. She wrote a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And she says this. She says, those who live out radically ordinary hospitality. I like that term, radically ordinary hospitality. She, those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors, they seek out the underprivileged, they know that the gospel comes with a house key. I like that phrase, the gospel comes with a house key. See, we've been duped into thinking that to love someone means that we have to approve of everything that they do, and that's not true. If the Jesus who lives inside of you is only strong enough to love people who are easy for you to love, then you don't know the good Samaritan Jesus. If love means that I only connect with people who are like me, that's not love. That's a clone club. And, and we're not benefiting from that kind of relationship. We don't need to agree with one another to love one another. This love for our neighbor has always been a distinguishing characteristic of the people of God. You know that the Roman Empire, of course, Christianity was launched in the Roman Empire, right? And the Roman Empire is known for two great innovations. It's known for its legal system, and it's known for its road system. 
With the building of roads, people began to travel more, crisscrossing the Roman Empire. But travel in the first century was actually dangerous, difficult. There weren't hotels. You know, you couldn't just stop off at the Hampton Inn and get a warm breakfast in the morning and a pool and a jacuzzi, maybe. You know, like those kind of things did not exist back then. Hospitals didn't exist the way that you and I picture them at all. And so it was very difficult. And Christians actually recognized a unique cultural moment happening in their lifetime, and they took the opportunity for the gospel, and they stepped in to meet the need, and they began to open their homes to travelers that crisscrossed the Roman Empire. John Chrysostom was one of the early church fathers. He was archbishop of Constantinople in the 300s, and he wrote a letter to uh, the Christians who were part of the churches where he served. And in the letter, he said this, Make for yourselves a guest chamber in your own house. Have a room to which Christ may come. Say, this is Christ's room. This building is set apart for him. And this practice of building on a room onto your house and keeping a room and designating it for a guest, was actually, it came to be known as the Christ Room. And it caught on, and it became quite popular. In fact, Christians became known across the Roman Empire for their hospitality and for their love of neighbor. So much so that the Emperor Julian, the emperor who was not at all a believer... Okay? And not at all in favor of this movement called Christianity. He wrote a letter to a friend of his, and in the letter he complained about the hospitality of Christians. And he told his friend, because they were winning over the Roman Empire, and he told his friend, he called on his friend to get all the Hellenistic priests to open their homes and to win the empire back to paganism. <laughs> Love that. Hospitality. Isn't that something? Hospitality actually was Christianity's first response to social injustice. The homes and the lives of Christians were wide open to anyone in need, whether enemy or friend. And their love for neighbor is what enabled the gospel message to burn like wildfire across the Roman Empire. You and I are living in similar times. We're living in isolated and divided times. Can you just imagine with me, dream with me for a moment, what would happen if God's people started to reach across the political aisle and love our neighbor? Imagine a Connecticut where followers of Jesus are known for throwing the best block parties. Imagine a Connecticut where Christian homes serve as the de facto community centers in their neighborhoods. Imagine a Connecticut where Christians sacrificially give to love single moms. Imagine a Connecticut where Christian homes become the neighborhood daycare, where kids can crash after school until their parents get home. Imagine a Connecticut. Imagine what would happen if Christians were the first to welcome immigrants into our state. Imagine what would happen if Christians stopped getting hung up on all the latest social issues that bug us, and we simply love the people standing in front of us without feeling the need to confront them about their bad politics or their bad whatever. Imagine that. I just love the person standing in front of me. Just love them. 
If you think about it, New River Church is always open. Why? Well, because the people are the church. You are New River Church, and your heart is the front door. And so if your heart is open, the church is always open. See that? I know to some of us, to the cynic, this sounds like I'm selling some utopian pipe dream. I get it. Some of you are thinking, you know, I I get it. I get it that some of my neighbors want nothing to do with me. I understand that. And I also get it that there are crooks and hucksters and there are some deeply troubled people out there who would be dangerous to bring into your home. And I'm certainly not asking you to endanger your children or yourself. That's not what I'm saying. But I also know the call of God to love our neighbor is literal as well as metaphorical. And I know that I can't use danger and other things as an excuse to not do it. So somehow I have to figure out how to do this well so that it honors Jesus. And all I have is right now, so what will I do with it? See? I understand, too, that neighboring changes over time. You know, Karis and I don't have little kids anymore. And honestly, I feel like when our kids were home, it was easier to do neighboring. Our kids were natural magnets. They're a natural connection point in our neighborhood. At least that's the way it worked in our our experience. Our front yard was the place where soccer games and horsing around took place in the neighborhood. Our, Our dinner tables were often open and often invaded by our kids' friends, you know, and now those kids, now our kids are gone. Now our, now our neighbor magnets have flown the coop. And so now what do we do with this? And Karis and I are in a place where we're discovering we've got to make our own friends. And we're finding that to be difficult. <laughs> so what does it look like for us to be good neighbors? See, what does it look like? I know this, that just because my kids are not home it means I need to be more intentional about it. I think that's the big difference. When my kids were there, it was a lot more natural. We didn't have to be as intentional. The kids just did it for us. But now that they're gone, now it's up to me and Karis to make plans and to actually do it. I know it's easy to get caught up in the routine and to just, you know, and like Jesus' lawyer friend, I justify myself, well, I'm busy. And we are, we're busy. But busyness, if you think about it, is definitely probably our greatest hindrance to neighboring well. The main thing that neighboring is going to cost you is time. And time is the one thing that you probably feel that you have the least. So I'm actually going to ask you to do something as your pastor. I'm actually going to ask you to do less in 2023. Do less. Cut out stuff that doesn't matter. I mean, some of you might need to serve less at church. So, really? Yes. Now, hey, some of you need to serve more at church. Let's just put that out there, okay? Some of you wouldn't hurt if you stepped up a little bit, would, would love a phone call, an email from you saying, hey, I'll help out with this. That'd be great. But some of you actually need to serve less at church because it's a hindrance to you and your ability to love your neighbor. Does that make sense? See, you, But you argue, well, everything I do is important. I don't know what I would cut out 
Did you know that the average American spends two and a half hours a day on their phone? Did you know there's a new word? Maybe I just heard this word recently. There's a new word called, it's, it's a word that's been coined. It's called show hole. Do you know what the show hole is? The show hole is this. When you finished binge watching one show and you haven't started binge watching the next show and you have that little feeling of depression in the middle as you're trying to figure out which show to binge next, that's called the show hole, that, that spot right there. Right? See that? The show hole. I'm, I'm thinking that we could find something to do with our time right there in the show hole. Like there's probably a lot we could do in that spot, don't you think? So you say, well, what does it mean to, what does it mean to neighbor well? What does it mean? What does it look like? Well, it might mean bringing a meal. It looks like that maybe. It looks maybe like listening to their boring stories. It might mean watching their kids for them. But mostly it just means being available. Just not being in such a hurry that I, I fail to love. Love and hurry are incompatible. We need to unhurry our lives for the sake of love. So it really is worth stopping and thinking about what I can cut out in order to make room for love. So I've got two homework items for us to do as we close this morning. The first homework item is this, uh, do a block map. Um, I've been reading this book for a, an equipping class that I've been in um, called The Art of Neighboring. So I got some of the concepts actually from that book here for today. But they use this thing they call a block map. And what this is is simply this. Um, you can draw it on a piece of paper. You draw nine blocks, right? And this is in the house in the center is you. That's your house. So these are then the other houses are all the ones that are adjacent to you. Or if you're in an apartment building, you know, you have to translate it into your context, your dorm room, your apartment, right? So these are the, these are the uh, houses, the apartments. These are the people that live adjacent to you. And then there are three questions that we're challenged to actually ask about each one of those people who live adjacent to us. The first question is their name. Do you know their name? So think through your own context. Can you name the names of the people who live adjacent to you? Okay. And the second question is, now name something about them that's not obvious. You know, oh, they have a red car. Like, that's obvious. Something that you would have to actually only learn about them by talking to them. You know, oh, he's, a, he's, a, he's a, an insurance salesman. Uh, oh, she's a nurse, uh, you know, whatever. You've got something you'd have to talk to them to know. So the second one is, some, is that. And then the third one is something personal, maybe a need that they have shared with you at some point, something that's, that you would only get from having a deeper conversation. And what they've discovered in this book, The Art of Neighboring, is that they've, as they've done this with thousands and thousands of Christians, um, churches all around, they found that most people can name their neighbors that are adjacent to them. Not everybody, like something like 60, 70%, most. But by the time you come to the third question, something personal, less than 1% of people can actually tell you something deeply personal about the people who live adjacent to them. And so that's the first step, is to do a block map. And it's not meant to shame you. It's meant to motivate you. It's meant for you to look at this. If you're like me, you're going to look at this and you go, well, I, I mean, I can, 
I can't, I, don't, I couldn't name all nine of, I couldn't, I couldn't fill in all nine blocks. And I know I'm pretty friendly, so I'm guessing where a lot of, where you might be at, right? So what that does is it gives me then work to do. I want to now be intentional. How do I get to know these other folks that are living right next to me for crying out loud? And then the second one is to brainstorm. Just follow that up with some brainstorming. Whether you're living on your own, brainstorm by yourself, or if you have your family with you, brainstorm with your family or your spouse or whatever. But, but talk about some ideas about what you can do. What does neighboring look like in your context? It looks different in every context. It does, you know. You're living in a dorm room at college, right? Maybe it's uh, you... Uh, you know, buying pizza on a Friday night or something. I don't know what it looks like in a dorm room. I haven't been in one in ages. You know, maybe uh, if it's an apartment, it's, it's just, it's going to look different in your context. So you think about what it looks like for you. How can I build it into my schedule? The phrase that we mentioned earlier, the gospel comes with a house key, has just been resonating in my soul. It just seems like it's so basic to Christianity. Doesn't it? I mean, bringing Christ to Connecticut, it begins with bringing him to my neighbors. It's literally living out Romans chapter 15, verse 7. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. We live with our arms wide open. We see our kitchen tables. We see our front yards. We see our apartments, our dorm rooms as the best places to have church. The best places. I want to just close, and, and guys, you can come and give us some music, but I want to close with this quote. Actually, if uh, Romans 15, 7 should be the next slide, Zach, and then there we go, and now the last slide. I want to close with this last slide. It's a quote by Mark Buchanan, who uh, wrote the book, Your Church is Too Safe, and um, I just like the way that he says it, so it's just, let me just read it for us here, okay? But he says, this is evangelism, Bible style. This is an evangelism that is cross-cultural, trans-political, multi-ethnic, class-defying, and wildly bountiful. And it takes a church utterly God-smitten who are in over their heads with the Holy of Holies. It takes a whole company of those who neither miss grace nor withhold it. For such a people, evangelism is a almost effortless, the mere byproduct of their God-smittenness. People who live with God at the center evoke, simply and powerfully, far and wide, curiosity about God. I like this next line. When God's way becomes our way, we become catnip to the world. Isn't that great? I love that. The fragrance of Jesus is all over us. Catnip to the world. I think that's possible. I mean, the Jesus who lives inside of us is intensely attractive. Do we not see that in Scripture? I mean, people couldn't get enough of Jesus. And, and now he lives in you and me. And I got to think that that attraction is still there. So we need to die to ourselves so that he increases so that the world can see him. I die to my own schedule. I die to my own 
comfort levels. And I say, okay, Lord, I'm yours. Use me as you see fit. Let's pray. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.